One of my mentors in ministry used to compare the Christian life to being on a swing set. He said, when you're on a swing, you go both backwards and forwards, and, and that's what keeps you going. He compared the Christian life to that. He said, we always need to be looking backwards to the cross to remind ourselves over and over how much the God of the universe loves us that he sent his own son to die for your sins and mine. That's why we're going to share communion this morning in obedience to Jesus' command. There's this backward looking. But that's not all there is to being on the swing set. There's this forward movement, this forward looking. We have to look back to the cross, but we always also have to look forward to the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ when he will come and restore all things and make all things right, back and forth, back and forth. I think about that looking forward. I think about what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, speaking to believers, he says, you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Down verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Not just the helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation. You might be saying, hey, if I'm a believer, why do I need to hope for salvation? I've already received Christ as my Savior. Well, biblically speaking, I want to tell you something you need to know as a believer. The believer in Jesus Christ has been saved, is being saved, and one day will be completely saved. The hope of salvation is talking about that day when you and I will be removed from the very presence of sin. Can you even imagine that? Removed altogether from the curse that sin brought. A place where there is no more death, no more suffering, no more tears in the very presence of God. You think about Christ's second coming to make all things right. It's been well pointed out. Isn't that the story behind every good story? Whether it's a movie or a book, there's somebody in need and they're, they're waiting for someone or something to come and make it right. That's why we love superhero movies. We long for someone to come make all things right. Last week, we talked about Jesus, the encourager. And he was encouraging us, be faithful in your suffering. Salvation is coming. This morning is similar. We're going to focus on Jesus, the king. And if I could paraphrase what I take out of this passage, it's this, be hopeful, believer. Jesus says, I'm coming, and I will make all things right. I don't know what you're going through this morning. Some of you need to hear that. Jesus says, I'm coming, and I will make all things right. But he starts out in our passage, Matthew 24, verse 15, by talking about the abomination of desolation. If you heard that word before, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. If you haven't, you said, what did you just say? <laughs> the abomination of desolation. 
We're going to talk about something predicted in the Old Testament, but as we do, I want you to envision hiking around here. This analogy is not new with me, but maybe you've been hiking, and you've been looking at a mountain peak, and you want to get there, and, and you thought that was the only mountain peak, and, and you start hiking, and, and you get up to that one, and then you realize, wait, there's, there's, there's another mountain peak down there. There's not just one, there's two there's maybe three. Many have well pointed out that prophecy in the Bible is like that sometimes. You see it fulfilled at one mountaintop, but then later on in history, you realize there's another mountaintop where it's fulfilled again. I want to give you an example from Jesus' first coming to, to prepare us for what he's saying about his second coming. I want to take you back to the prophet Isaiah's day, centuries before Christ. There were nations threatening Judah, and King Ahaz was fearful about it. And God said to Ahaz through Isaiah, do not fear. What you're fearing from these nations shall not come to pass. And God says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. You might know this verse. You might not know that the Lord said it to King Ahaz in that context. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you know that was spoken in that context to King Ahaz? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And that word virgin is interesting. It can mean young woman. It can also mean virgin. But after that sign was predicted to Ahaz, you know what we read in Isaiah? Isaiah 8, verse 3, Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess, that was his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, we got a parent-child dedication coming up here. I don't imagine any of those kids are going to have that name. I hope not. If they do, please prepare me in advance. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> but there was a reason they gave that child that name. It means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Verse 4, for before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. He's saying these nations that you're scared of, they're going to be overtaken by Assyria. What you're afraid of is not going to happen. And then Isaiah 8.18, Isaiah confirms that his child was the sign. Says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents to Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. What's that mean? It was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. The king feared destruction. It did not come, and Isaiah's child was a sign. But some of you are thinking, wait a second. What about Matthew, right? Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says it was ultimately fulfilled in who? In Jesus, Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He goes to that same verse. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So let me ask you a couple questions. Was it fulfilled in Isaiah's day? Yes. Was it fulfilled when Jesus was born? Yes. Yes. Now I want to take that same concept to a prophecy I believe points to the yet future, even for us. Multiple fulfillments. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in a holy place, let the reader understand. So you say, what is this abomination of desolation? I believe it's one of those prophecies that could have multiple fulfillments. We know back in 167 B.C. when Greece had overtaken Israel, there was a wicked leader named Antiochus Epiphanes. You know what he did in the temple in Jerusalem? He offered up a pig as a sacrifice to Zeus on the altar in Jerusalem. They would have looked at that and said, that is the abomination of desolation. He desolated God's house. But I want to look forward to A.D. 70 when Rome invaded and burned the temple. I learned this week that not only did they destroy many Jews taking their lives, not only did they destroy the temple, but Titus, the Roman leader, entered the Holy of Holies, spread out a scroll of the law on the altar, and had his way with two harlots in the temple. Of course, the Jews at that time would have, would have said, that is the abomination of desolation. I believe on this one, there's a third mountaintop yet to come. I believe there's going to be an antichrist in the yet future who establishes a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years at the beginning of a future tribulation and then break it with them halfway through. He will break the covenant. We read about this man in 2 Thessalonians 2. As Paul talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, so that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, is there a, a Jewish temple in Jerusalem right now? What's that mean? For this to happen, that's going to have to be rebuilt, right? There are people already gathering the supplies needed for that very thing. But I believe this is the same man spoken of in Revelation 13. Beast, verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes awe, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. He's going to demand worship. Everything about that question, how could people allow themselves to be controlled that way? I look back at 2020. Now, hear this clarification clearly. I'm not saying any of that was the mark of the beast, so don't go saying I said that. But look back at 2020. If you doubted that people, even in America, could be controlled, you learn something in 2020. They can. And how? Through fear. Through fear. There are corrupt leaders in this world eager to remove God from the equation, to remove God from everything. Why? Because those corrupt leaders want his throne in your life. They want his throne in my life. There are corrupt leaders who want you and I depending on them. The Antichrist will be the ultimate embodiment of that. It's going to be a dire time. Verse 16 says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house, and, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. What's, what's he saying? He's saying, when you see that, run and do not look back. You see the very Jewish flavor of it in these next verses. 19, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why? Well, pray that your flight may not be in winter. That one's understandable. Snowy, cold, or on a Sabbath. It's very Jewish. He's talking to people who will be in Jerusalem at that time. Why don't you want that flight to take place on the Sabbath? Well, there's strict rules about how far you can travel. Others might try to impose those on you. And others, B, would probably be less likely to help you for fear that they themselves violate the Sabbath law. But bottom line, he's saying, you see that. Run. And don't look back. Verse 21 says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. This verse right here is why I do not believe this prophecy was totally fulfilled in A.D. 70. That was an awful event. Some historians estimate 1.1 million Jews died when Rome took the temple. But can we really honestly say there has not been that much suffering since? I think about a man named Hitler. Six million Jews. Not to mention the multiplied millions of people whose lives were taken under Stalin and Mao. Jesus says this will be a time of great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. 
Verse 22, he says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What's that mean? It mean that somehow 24-hour days are going to be trimmed down to, to 20? Most of us would wish for the opposite, right? And you look at your schedule and say, hey, can I have a few more? Does it mean that there's going to be less hours in a day? No. No. I mean, God has set a clock for that seven-year tribulation. And once it begins, it will last as long as he deems it fit and not a moment longer. If it were to last longer, Jesus says no human being would be saved. Last week we talked about deception. We talked about how we see it in our world today. In this period, yet future, it's going to grow even more intense. Listen to what he says. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Did you notice what he says in verse 24? He says false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Did you know signs, wonders, miracles are not a guarantee that someone is from the Lord? Do you know that signs are not always sacred? In fact, sometimes they're satanic. Beware of deception. Check their fruit. Is the fruit of that person the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it works of the flesh? Check their teaching. Just because it gets a lot of clicks doesn't mean it's Christ-like. Is their teaching aligned with the Word of God? Do they speak truth about Jesus Christ? Beware of the deception. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. When they talk about, look, he's in the wilderness, look, he's in the inner rooms, what's that kind of imply? Kind of implies, hey, he, he's come, but somehow you've missed it. You, you didn't realize that he's come. Jesus says, no way. No way. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whatever else that means, it means it's going to be obvious when Jesus comes to touch foot on planet Earth. But the first time he came as a babe in that manger, it was relatively quiet. Only a few people heard at the outset. Not this time. It's going to be crystal clear. Verse 28, he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Scholars have wrestled with what in the world does that mean for years? I read that, and I can't help but wonder, is he thinking about a can't-miss battle called Armageddon? 
will take place when he touches foot here. A battle that the king is showing up for. Notice the wording. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And then look at Revelation 19.17. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains. The flesh of mighty men. The flesh of horses and their riders. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Down to verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. No one is going to miss the battle of Armageddon at that time. Verse 29, as immediately after the tribulation of those days, I believe that's somebody at the end of that future seven-year tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now I look at the wording there, this prediction. I think about the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? Some of the most glorious parts of creation, and the parts that cause us awe and wonder, you look up at the night sky or ponder how powerful the sun is during the day. Is this those parts of creation bowing down to their mighty creator? Is, is that part of what's hinted at here? Passing off center stage to him who made them for his glorious appearance? We know the sun was darkened throughout the whole land for hours when Jesus died on the cross. Whatever the case, verse 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What's the sign of the Son of Man? People debated that for centuries too. Some thought it was a cross. And we're looking for a cross. Some thought it was a lightning mentioned earlier. Many, including myself, believe it's Jesus himself. Jesus himself, earlier in Revelation 19.11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Incidentally, one of the reasons I believe the church will not be on earth for that future seven-year tribulation, one of the reasons I believe the church is raptured before to meet him in the air, a la 1 Thessalonians 4, is this. 
Revelation 19.11, which we just read, which describes his second coming, where he touches down on planet Earth. You know what that comes right after in Revelation 19? The marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride in the first part of the chapter, indicating to me that his bride, the church, was already with him in heaven, enjoying that feast. Now let me put a little asterisk on this. As long as we agree on the main teachings of Scripture, it's okay to differ on some of the timing of this. If you disagree with me on some of the exact timing, we can dialogue, we can fellowship, it's okay. But for now, I want to come back to the people on earth at that time. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Well, I think about those soldiers gathered to fight against him there at that battle of Armageddon. You know, if you ever played football, I never did, but imagine you're, you're on a football team and you show up there on Friday night and you look out on the field and you see that Every player on the other team is about six inches taller than your guys and about 50 pounds heavier. What do you do? You say, uh-oh, uh-oh. Listen, many at this point are gathered to fight against him at the Battle of Armageddon. When they see him coming, they're getting a glimpse of their coming defeat. Talk about the ultimate. Oh, no. There's a specific mourning prophesied among the tribes of Israel at that time. Zechariah 12, starting at verse 10, says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Many Jewish folks at that moment will realize we, we crucified the Messiah and he's coming. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And crossing into Zechariah 13, something beautiful. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We know from Paul's writings in Romans, a remnant of Israel will turn in faith to receive their Messiah and his forgiveness. It says all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man at his coming. Now skeptics have said, how is that possible? You know, we live on a globe, right? How is that possible for them all to see him? I don't know. Let me start with this. He's God. But second, I just wonder, maybe he'll take some time for a victory lap. Doesn't say he's going to come down quick. Maybe he's going to take a victory lap, taking some time in the sky to orbit the planet in all of his royal pomp and circumstance. I don't know how. I just know it says all the tribes of earth will see the Son of Man. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, 
from one end of heaven to the other. I don't believe that's the rapture. I shared with you earlier, I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. I believe this is the gathering of those who believe during that tribulation. There will be some who come to him, gathering them to welcome them straight into his kingdom. Christ the King. I believe he'll sit on a literal throne of David for 1,000 years and usher in eventually the new heavens and the new earth. Now I think about that. As we come to the end this morning, think about him coming to make all things right. I want to go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. Genesis 1. Hey, what, what are you going there for? Hang with me. 127 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. How'd Adam and Eve do in that department? They blew it. Big time. Adam sinned. And, and you look around at the living creatures on the earth. We have what's been called nature, red and tooth and claw, right? Now, keeping in mind the picture of men and the dominion over the animals, I want to go forward to Daniel. Some of you know the book of Daniel. And you know that in, in addition to a vision of coming kingdoms as a statue, God brought them to Daniel also with the symbolism of animals, beasts, right? Babylon was compared to a lion. Then there was a bear, then a leopard, then terrifying beast, which is a Rome out of which the little horn would rise in the future. Animals. And you look, every kingdom on this planet, even the best ones. Every kingdom ruled by men has some beastly characteristics because they're all ruled by sinful men and women, right? But then you get to Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. He says, I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of their beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The Son of Man is given dominion. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I take all that in together and think about what we're seeing here where Adam failed, Jesus overcame. Believers, believers, we will reap the fruit of that 
for all eternity. For all eternity. Think just about one little passage, and there are many. Try, try to imagine a world like this. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I want to close where we started. I want to close talking about hope. Hope. I read a true story this week about a submarine that was ran by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. Every effort was made to save the men inside. In the end, it all failed. But there was a diver who had gone down, and he heard tapping from the inside of the submarine. And he heard it a few times before it sank in. That's Morse code. And he finally put two and two together. Over and over, they were tapping out, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Now, I don't know what you're facing this morning in your life. I don't know what's going on at your home, your work. As you look around at your world and the world in general, maybe you're asking that question, though. Is there any hope? I want to tell you, the answer from Jesus this morning is a resounding yes. He's saying to you this morning, there is hope in me. Place your trust in me. I talked to a friend this week who grew up in a very difficult home. Tension between mom and dad. In fact, that tension led to a, a divorce. Made it tough for him and his sister growing up. And when they were growing up, their parents would drop them off at church for, for kids programs and they grew up. The daughter moved out to get away from, from all that was going on. And the city she moved to, uh, she realized that there was a pastor nearby who had been the pastor at the church where they were getting dropped off at his kids. She started going there, and eventually her brother, who's my friend, moved down there with her. And he said she started going there, and and I realized after a little while, she has a strength in her life that she didn't have before. She has a, a peace in her life that she didn't have before. She has a joy in her life that she didn't have before. And he said her transformation in Jesus Christ was what led him to find his hope in Jesus Christ. And today, they're actually going back to California in the near future to share Christ with their aging father. They found hope 
in the Savior coming out of a broken home. You could do that this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined the believer for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Have you found that hope in Jesus Christ? Charles Spurgeon said this, A man says to me, Can you explain the seven trumpets of Revelation? No, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape the wrath to come. Another says, can you tell me when the end of the world will come? No, but I can tell you how to be so prepared for it that you need not be afraid. If it were to come tonight, I can urge you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you can await it with holy joy. Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you await his, his coming with holy joy? If you have not, there will be a prayer team up here after that would love to talk to you about that. I'll close with Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now listen, just 10 minutes after I read that passage this morning, I got a text from Liz Dudek. Where are you at? Right there. You know what she said? She said, I'm coming. And here she is. Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. And surely he will. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the hope of your future coming the hope of the completion of our salvation, the hope of you fixing all that's broken and making all things right. Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room still under your wrath because they have not embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior, perhaps fearing your coming deep down inside, because deep down they know the lake of fire is what awaits them. May your Holy Spirit draw them to the foot of the cross where a Savior spilled his blood for their sins. May you draw them to an empty tomb where he rose again, victorious over everything that holds them captive. May you bring them to that simple place of faith where they say, Dear Father, I trust your Son, Jesus Christ, for my salvation, for my hope, for my life. In Jesus' name.